it's the artware, the jewelry for finishing off a restoration. You spend a year working on a machine and you got blood, sweat, and tears. You got angry wife for, you know, the last six months you've been putting up with. And uh, you need those new tags to make it look like it was all worthwhile. Thank you for tuning in to the Restoration Podcast with James, Evan, and Dave, where we restore yesterday's tools for the craftsmen of today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Restoration Podcast. How's everybody doing tonight? Doing very well, Evan. How are you? Fantastic. Fantastic. We have a very special guest with us tonight that we're going to pick his brain a little bit. We have Tom Utley with us, who is the owner of Vaughn Industrial, the creator of the reproduction tags that we use on our machinery and vices. An excellent resource to have, and we are very happy to have him on. Tom, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Tom, welcome to the show. And I'm super stoked to be here. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. So, you know, just getting started here, um, I I think a lot of us in in the restoration, restoration community are already aware of, of what you offer to the community, which is a, a great service. But, you know, tell us a little bit about um, what you do. I mean, we, we know you're an engineer by by trade. You can tell us a little bit about that and then uh, a little bit about Vaughn Industrial and how, how you got into that. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm an engineer by training, a mechanical engineer, and I work for an aerospace company. And... Uh, I see James is over there pumping his fists. Yeah, I think, engineering all I, think, the way. I think James and I have a very similar background. In fact, we can talk about that sometime. Yep. Um, I have worked with my hands forever. Since growing up on a farm in the middle of nowhere in rural Arkansas, um, you know, fixing machinery and all that, went off to school, became an engineer. And then the funny thing about engineering is if you're any good at it at all, the first thing they do is they move you up into leadership roles. And then right. guess what? You don't get to do engineering anymore, right? Ah, oh, man. Right? Amen, brother. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so you're left frustrated and you can't use the cool stuff at work that, you know, you get to play with because that's, you know, the companies or the customers or whatever. So, like a lot of us, um, I I do more engineering at home than I do at my high-tech day job. Okay. And, and a few years ago, I think it's going on about six years ago now, I bought a derelict South Bend uh, 16-inch metal lathe when we were living out in northern Alabama near Huntsville. And uh, that's kind of a story in, in and of itself, but um, I'm, a, I'm an amateur machinist I'm an amateur everything I guess but I spent a lot of time restoring that machine including having the waste ground you know hand scraping um, you know a lot of electrical upgrades mechanical upgrades it's probably more accurate than it was when it left the factory in 1943 now but I couldn't find any tags um, not true I could find one tag the gearbox tag it's pretty common but when I started looking around, it wasn't super high quality, it wasn't etched, and I didn't really like how it played on the machine. So, like so many of us, I thought, hey, I can figure that out. And I spent a few months researching and watching a lot of YouTube and and uh, a lot of failed attempts and finally figured out how to etch brass at home. That led to making tags for a few other friends, and then social media you know, kicked in and the rest is history. 
So big thanks to people like Keith Rucker and Adam Booth for um, kind of giving me a foot in the door. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, we, we I know I've watched uh, many of, of Keith's and Adam's videos, and you have made some amazing tags for their machinery. And um, it's, you know, the, when we think about that, the, the machinery that we're using is – is perfectly functional if we restore it without the tags, but it something just doesn't sit right when you look at the machine and you see the the four little dimples where some tag used to be, and you're like, I have to find that. And oftentimes you either have to get it from another piece of machinery that was the same, or you have to make your own. And and you know Tom has been creating these these excellent reproduction tags and they just they fit so perfectly because when like like tom said when you spend all that time uh you know fixing up a lathe or a piece of machinery and and you get it perfect and you get the old tag that may have been damaged or has a part missing and you can't read it um so getting getting that new tag just like it was when it left the factory is is the icing on the cake so it's it's a fantastic resource for a lot of a lot of people in the restoration community yeah, I think if you're OCD enough to restore a machine tool, you're OCD enough to be bugged by poor quality tags and, For like sure. you said, missing holes. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a great resource to have. Um, so I guess well, – we, go ahead, James. Oh, I was I was just going to say, so your very first badge was for the South Bend. Um, yeah. Since you've made that – badge and then turned around and offered your service to others are you still using the same process or if you were to recreate that same badge now is there a, a different way you would do it maybe talk us through what what you saw via youtube research that got you into it versus maybe we can leap into uh what your current process looks like yeah so you might be surprised to know the process i use today for most tags is exactly the same okay and it's uh heat transfer of laser toner which is a super common way to make stuff like this. It's a process that came out of the circuit board, uh, circuit board uh, CCA industry and electronics. It's a way to mask copper for etching circuit traces. Okay. And uh, there are pros and cons, but uh, maybe I could step back for a minute and kind of walk through. People might wonder how some of these tags are made, and I'll share a little bit about what I've learned about it. Sure, please. Um, in kind of general terms, machine tags have been around since the turn of the last century. They've been made in different ways over the years. Um, most of the ones that you're going to see on a mainstream machine tool were probably mass-produced. And by mass-produced, I mean sheets of hundreds at a time. And they were probably either uh, silk-screened. Today we'd call that screen printing, but they were probably silk screened, or they might have been uh, printed or masked using some kind of high-speed industrial printing equipment. They, they might have been masked with ink. They might have been masked with uh, material called asphaltum. It's kind of like tar that's uh, quite inert in the chemicals that were used to etch the tags. And you're generally going to see three materials. You're going to see brass uh, originally. And then later, you're going to see aluminum. And then in between, in the warriors, you're going to see quite a bit of zinc and tin. Yep, yep. And the zinc ones, unfortunately, are the ones that tend to disappear the fastest. They oxidize at a, at a pretty high clip. 
So the tags off my original South Bend from 1943 were actually made out of zinc, and they're okay. almost gone. Hmm. Um, brass seems to last the longest, oxidize the slowest, in other words. And aluminum, surprisingly, we have a kind of a misconception that aluminum doesn't tarnish, doesn't uh, oxidize. Um, just the opposite is true. Aluminum is one of the most chemically active metals that we have. And uh, the only reason that it, it doesn't just disappear in minutes is because it forms an oxide layer as soon as it's exposed to oxygen, and that oxide layer yeah. sort of protects it. Yeah. But if you bump it, scratch it, it immediately reoxidizes. And in fact, that's one of the problems that I have etching it chemically, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. It's quite active uh, when it interacts with, you know, the acids that you'd use to etch brass, for example. Right. So the basic process to make a machine tag is you need some artwork, and then you need to transfer that artwork onto a piece of metal and form a mask or a resist. And then the resist keeps whatever etchant you're using at bay while the etchant's working on the metal that's exposed. And the etchant eats down or into the plate, and it also eats sideways under the mask. And we call that undercutting. And that's the tricky part of making stuff with really tiny text details and fine graphic lines. You have to kind of thicken up the art so that by the time you get down to the depth you want, you still have some meat on the face. Now, when, when you say depth, what, uh, what depths are we talking here? Or well, an old uh, commercially produced tag is typically going to be on the order of three or four thousandths. They're pretty shallow. Okay. And the reason they could go that shallow is because they were coming back and applying the color uh, with automated equipment that would put it, you know, back where it needed to go. Um, most of the tags I'm making, because I, I don't have the resources to, you know, set up high-speed presses or I haven't even actually done silk screening yet, something I'd like to get into. I am usually overspraying the entire face, letting it cure, and then abrasively removing it from the face, trying not to scratch the color fill. Okay. So I shoot for about 10,000 steep when I start, and then I'll usually wind up in the, you know, five to 6,000 steep uh, left when I'm done polishing the face. So, so in layman's term, you're basically creating a valley, then you overfill it, and then yep. you kind of brush it back to get the final reveal. That's exactly right. Are you yes. able to do that in multiple, I'm sorry, are you able to do that in multiple layers to get various colors, or do you have to create divides between um, different colors, or do you end up, is there a trick there, or is it happening? No, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, I do need a barrier to separate colors unless I am applying them with a teeny tiny brush under a microscope. And I've done that. It's, it's so no fun, but <laughs> on a couple of really special tags that had two or three colors and, you know, really no features to separate the color, that's possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, of, I think of Oliver and I think of American where yeah. they've got like the eagles and they've got the globes and those have really, really tight tiny yep. lines yep. and lots of color around them. Um, when they were doing that uh, originally, though, you, you believe that's probably more of a silk screen for that, that paint application? Yeah, I've talked to quite a few people, and it was either printed 
uh, might have been, I don't know when pad printing came along, if you guys have ever seen the squishy balls that transfer a design yep. onto an irregular mm -hmm. surface. Um, I don't know when that came online, but that would have been an option. But uh, screen printing, once you have the multiple colors registered really well, um, actually does a good job of pushing it down, you know, uh, two or three or four thousandths below the surface. Nice. Right. Cool. Excellent. So you did mention that, um, you know, you first started off with brass, but now you're you're into the aluminum tags. Um, I, I've had this experience with you where I ordered my, my Craftsman uh, vice tag, which was in brass, because at the time... Um, you were not able to do that in aluminum. So how have you updated your process to accommodate aluminum now? Well, I punted. I outsourced to a laser shop. Okay. <laughs> uh, it turns out with a good quality fiber laser, uh, you can't do this with a CO2 laser, at least not that I'm aware of. Maybe in the high end, hundreds and hundreds of watts you could do it. But um, typically it's a fiber laser. And by keeping the the passes overlapping correctly and changing direction frequently, you can get very close to the appearance of a chemically etched aluminum tag. And the good part about the laser is, well, one, it's really fast. Two, there's really no chemicals involved. You don't need to apply a mask. The artwork is your mask. Um, you just need a vector file, even a vector PDF. And depending on the controller software that your laser or your laser shop in my case uses, in my case, black equals burn. And I tell them any, anything that looks black, I want deep etched. And your target is however many passes it takes to get down to about 10,000 steep. Okay, excellent. So so the, the, the traditional process that you had used for brass, it does not apply at all for the aluminum. So you have to use the laser method for that. So if, if a tag is large enough, if the details are large enough, you can, um, with some babysitting, you can water down uh, a common etchant like ferric chloride, which is what I normally use for brass. You can dilute that down, and with enough quantity, enough thermal mass, you keep the plate moving. I mean, literally in my gloved hand, I'm swishing it around for five or ten minutes. You can etch aluminum in ferric chloride without it going exothermic. Okay. But if you park it, even for a few seconds, that exothermic reaction between the aluminum and the metallic salt, um, you, know how, you know how, back, back to chemistry class, it's the Arrhenius equation. As temperature goes up, the reaction rate goes up. Well, with an exothermic reaction, you're heating the etchant. The etchant then heats the plate, which heats the etchant more, and you get a runaway thermal cycle that boils right. boils away your mask and then your toast. And it just happens in seconds. Okay. Wow. Yeah, interesting process there. The commercial etching houses where you buy, you know, big quantity orders of nameplates that use aluminum, they use ferric chloride. I think they probably buffer it with some other chemicals, but um, basically I think they're keeping it moving fast enough that they're controlling the heat of that reaction. And um, ultimately they get a clean etch where I just really struggle on small details. Okay, I understand. Yeah. So we know that you said earlier that you started out, you know, with redoing a tag for yourself and then you know you, you got uh 
some friends involved and you sold some tags to them. Uh, but now you have, have opened up your, your business there, Vaughn Industrial, where basically anybody can send you art and send you information and you can have a tag made for them. And we, we did have a podcast um, several episodes back where we talked about um, restoration as a, as a business. And I, I think this certainly applies here. So um, if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about how you got into the, the business aspect of it and how, the, how that's been going for you. Well, I'm happy to share that experience if anybody's thinking about embarking down that path. Um, I, I will say, first of all, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I thought I would be, you know, fresh out of college. I thought the corporate gig would be two or three years, and then I would quickly move down to the point where uh, I owned my own business. Uh, reality struck. You have kids. You have a mortgage. Uh, you have a pension plan. Think, Think of that. that. Yeah. Uh, healthcare and 401k matching and all that sort of thing kicks in to keep you from, um, you know, being as brave as maybe you thought you were. Right. So I'm still I'm still in the big company, and um, three years away from full pension eligibility. Believe it or not. So there you go. We'll we'll see how that goes after. But in the meantime, um, the 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 business aspect of it. I mean, I can trace a line, a beeline, straight back to Keith Rucker and Adam Booth. And Keith and Adam both warned me. They posted tags within a couple of weeks of each other when this whole thing started. And they warned me. Uh, Adam in particular said, hey, you know, you're going to get calls. And I thought, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> you know, who's, who's going to want me to make tags for them? And it probably wasn't six hours after Adam's first video hit that I'd already booked a $1,500 tag order. There you go. Wow. Your phone's That's ringing awesome. off the hook, email blowing up. Got crazy. Crazy. in the door. Yeah. I would say things have settled down to a dull roar now. But on average, I receive one or two quote requests a day. I typically convert, you know, maybe 30 to 40% of those into jobs. And, um, you know, it's turned into a thing where I spend most of my evenings that I'm not doing family stuff, working on artwork. And then I try to etch only on Saturdays because I've got to heat the tank and clean the tank and, you know, uh, run air hoses and everything to get the bubbler going. It's just kind of a pain to etch more than one day a week. But I try to batch everything in that I can. And sometimes I'll have you know, 15, 20, 25 plates going in the tank at one time. Yeah. Fantastic. Wow. So, yeah. Do you, do you it, it, when you batch them together, um, coming from a, a little bit of my experience in our engineering department, we, we nest all our parts together. Correct. So we'll have large parts uh, nested with small parts. Um, we cut a lot of things on our laser and plasma machines. There's all kinds of rules that we have set up where there needs to be a certain amount of waste material in between. Um, but for our sake, if we cut it out. It's all the same thickness. When you're nesting all these uh, shapes together, uh, I'm assuming that you're able to give them all the same uh, etching characteristics. Uh, do you ever get orders where folks are either asking you to go really, really light or really, really heavy, or, or is part of your process saying this is what explaining how it fits into your model uh, more than trying to take that custom request? Yeah, I will say 
maybe 90% of my tags that I etch here at home at least are in uh, 032, which is 20, 20 gauge, I think, brass. Okay. Sheet stock. Uh, it's a pretty common thickness of these old tags, and they vary from, you know, I've seen really thin ones from 15 thousandths aluminum up to really thick, you know, eighth inch or three sixteenths tags that actually probably weren't etched, they were cast. But 90% of the tags that I do will fit uh, really well in 032 sheet stock, whether that's brass or aluminum. And it works out really well for etching 10,000 deep. I have enough material left on the backside to keep it nice and flat and rigid. And it's not so thick that you can't conform it to a curved machine surface when you go to mount it on with drive rivets. Do you, um, do you end up with certain shapes that uh, will move, physically move on you because of the chemical reaction? Or do you still typically re remain fairly flat? We have, no. we have lots of rules where yeah, yeah. things are too thin, so it'll start curling, the heat involved. Um, but yeah. chemically, does that affect the badge if it's a weird shape? No, it's that's a very perceptive question. Uh, it's a struggle for the color fill part of it and sanding the faces. When you get rolled sheet stock like 032 brass, there's a lot of residual stresses still in that material. Mm -hmm. When you etch away most of one side, guess what happens? It springs away from the side that was etched, and you wind up with a convex shape mm -hmm. that I then have to try to sand uh, on a flat. It's a granite surface plate is what it is with sandpaper. Nothing super high-tech, but you have to remove that curl, or you're going to wind up, you know, scratching your color fill. Hmm. Right. Uh, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a you know kind of a property you have to deal with with almost any material that you get for processing. When you remove it, you know you're releasing stresses that were, you know, internalized with that, and you got to make sure that when you finish it up, it's it's uh, going to turn out the way you want it to turn out. Yeah, I suppose somewhere I could probably find pre-annealed brass sheet stock that wouldn't do that. Uh, I just haven't looked hard enough to know where to find that. Sure. The other thing I'll say. Some of you might be familiar with the term chemical milling, which is technically what I'm doing when I'm etching. I'm just etching one side. Chemical milling a lot of times refers to etching from both sides to meet in the middle, and you can cut all the way through the part. And you can make fantastically complex shapes in, you know, foil if you wanted to. Gasket shapes and spacers and uh, even, you know, radio frequency antennas sometimes are made this way. Uh, it's a pretty cool process, but it requires registering a, a, um, a mirror and a non-mirrored image on both sides, mm -hmm. masking both so they're perfectly registered, and that's quite complicated to do. And then yeah, sure. it, these, we're talking really, really thin at this point. You don't have to worry about that undercut in something thick really Correct. changing. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. I did have a, a follow-up question for you. So, you, you know, you started out with the single tag and you started making them for friends and then we moved on to, you know, having the business where people can send in uh, quotes and get their own tags made. Um, I'm, I'm certain that it, it started out, you know, enjoyable and, and as a hobby for you. Do you still find it enjoyable or has it turned into the, the business aspect for you? Well, you're catching me right in the middle of tax season. <laughs> okay, right, right. <laughs> it's our second cycle, my wife and I struggling through small business taxes. Okay. Um, and I think we've got a pretty good system down 
the, the most difficult part was just figuring out how to run QuickBooks. I have, uh, you know, it's, it's neither here nor there, but I have two master's degrees, and accounting software makes me feel like I'm a complete idiot. Okay, yeah. yeah. So we got through that, but the the business side of it, just keeping track of the expenses and the receipts and all the accounting, you know, every business is like that. Right. The chemical etching side of it is probably my least favorite aspect. Uh, it's just messy. It's dirty. Yeah. And, um, you know, ferric chloride stains everything it comes in contact with. I have to be really careful with what I'm wearing and, you know, even splashing on things. So I keep most yeah. of that stuff outdoors. But the part that I enjoy that I never get tired of is the artwork. And the, you know, folks who come looking for tags uh, probably don't generally appreciate that about two-thirds of what I do is really artwork. It's not the tag fabrication. It's the etching mask. Right. Mm -hmm. And to get to a high-quality etching mask that's, no kidding, looks like the original after it's etched. Remember, I mentioned the undercutting part. You have to make adjustments for that. Um, it, it's easily two-thirds of the work that goes into the first tag, the proof copy. For sure. And I may spend, you know, if it's a simple little, um, you know, rectangular tag with some text on it with a font that's fairly close to a computer font so I don't have to modify it too much, that might be an hour's worth of work. Right. If you bring me a Moriseki lathe gearbox tag, that's 16 inches wide and has a mix of graphics and lines and some funky font that, you know, I've got to tweak every single glyph. I basically have to invent a new font every time I do one of these. Um, you know, that could be a day and a half worth of work right there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I ran into that, that same same deal when uh, my, my Craftsman Vice tag, and I, I had did uh, partial of the artwork because Tom had sent me a a scan he had of of a craftsman tag and I I traced that in AutoCAD and got some of it going and I um, had submitted it back to him and then he he made it even look even better so he, he he's a you're you're a master with the the artwork now so it it's great. Well, if I if I was in the real art world, I guess I'd be a uh, what do you call him a forger. Because all, I, all I do is yeah, yeah. trace other people's art, really. I just try to do it in a way that honors the original designer's intent. So I, uh, I get really annoyed when I see knockoff tags out on the Internet right. that just use a true type font. And they didn't make any effort at, you know, adjusting the kerning, um, tweaking the just the nuances. This old stuff, this old typefaces, they were all hand set. Right. So the, they're not monospace they're not proportionally spaced they're just hand spaced and sometimes even in the same font on the same plate in the same line of text uh, the same character will look a little bit different further down in the row than the first one did yeah mm. and I, I love it that I've seen some of the tags that you make you have the option of uh, if it has like a serial number or, or a data yeah. plate that where you could make it, you know, everything's lined up. It's perfectly spaced in the block that you have for it. But you also have made tags where 
you make it look like it's been hand stamped and the stamps are kind of cockeyed a little bit and willy nilly all over the place. Yeah, I love those. The brand new tag, it looks beautiful. And then you have the, the misaligned data stamps. So I think it looks amazing, though. Well, a lot of these old tags would have been stamped with a, a you know, a metal stamp and a hammer, right? Yep. And they're kind of wonky. And, you know, that's just part of the character of an old vintage tag. Well, you can't always find number stamps to match. I have a few sets. I probably have half a dozen sets, but finding a dead-on match at the right height uh, with the right little serifs and everything is usually a challenge. And so once in a while, if the customer isn't happy with uh, the stamps that I have, then I'll just copy the original stamp artwork, incorporate it right into the etching mask, and... Uh, Usually I'll let that etch about half as deep as the rest of the tag and then pull it out, clean it, and remask the stamp pad so it's not etching anymore and then go on down with the, the rest of the relief. Oh, that's Excellent. Tricky. Excellent. Yeah, that's, that's a great, great option to have. So another thing that we like to, to ask uh, people that come on the podcast is um, – you know, you do make these tags, but it sounds like you've done some restoration of your own. I mean, you talked about the South Bend lathe that you have done. Um, have you done any other restorations uh, aside from that? I have uh, quite a few. Uh, the lathe is probably the most intensive machine restoration I've done, but I've done, uh, you know, ball door grinders, scroll saws. I've got three old Delta uh, vintage scroll saws, pre-war era sitting in my restoration queue right now. I have a Powermatic Model 30 uh, belt and disc sander waiting on restoration right now. In fact, I need it to do the tag work. Um, quite a few, you know, small little things. Uh, my Schmidt stamping presses that I use for stamping serial numbers. Right, yep. Uh, all three of those were restorations of some sort. Um, Arbor presses, I, I just... Uh, Whatever comes in the door. Just do a little bit of everything then. Yeah. Nice. So would you say that your, uh, your lathe is your, your crowning jewel then? My lathe is more than a machine tool to me. And I know you guys are smiling and everybody who's listened to this is kind of rolling their eyes right now. <laughs> but I went to school on that lathe. I didn't really know much about machining when, when I, I bought it. Uh, the last time I had touched the lathe was, uh, you know, in the machine shop in college here and there. Prior to that, it was high school, uh, you know, way back in shop class. I did not consider myself a machinist at all. And this lathe has kind of a special story. It was sold in uh, June of 1943 to the Army, right in the middle of World War II. Okay. It was delivered to Fort McHenry, Maryland, which is the origin of the Star-Spangled Banner. If you're familiar with that. And, uh, you know, who knows what it did during wartime. But between wartime and the early 80s, it worked its way through government channels, and it wound up at Marshall Space Flight Center, one of the NASA centers in Huntsville, Alabama. Right. And I think it was probably in 1985, it was auctioned off as government surplus. And a local gentleman there in Huntsville bought it, who, his name, his name was, was Bobby Callahan. And uh, when he passed away a few years ago is when I was able to purchase the lathe from his widow. Bobby was a world-class master billiards cue maker. 
So he made wooden pull cue sticks and, you know, repaired other people's cues on this lathe, which is kind of part of the the good and bad story of my machine. The good was it really hadn't seen a lot of wear mechanically on the drive components. The bad news is Mr. Callahan sanded all of his wooden pull cues on the open ways without protecting them. Okay. So part of the story of this lathe was fixing, uh, let's see, it took 50 thousandths, that's five zero thousandths, to clean up the ways when I had the ways reground. Wow. And on a metal lathe, typically however much the, the bed ways are worn, the saddle is going to be worn even more because 100% of the saddle's in contact all the time. Well, the saddle had 65 thousandths worth of wear to take off the bottom. Wow. So the whole thing dropped 115 thousandths below where it was when it left the factory. Okay. So regrinding, uh, hand scraping, you know, the whole nine yards to get the lathe running again. And uh, electrical upgrades, I have an analog tack uh, with a Hall effect sensor and a, uh, an aftermarket diesel tachometer with a custom dial face on it. It's kind of cool. Wow. That's um, you know, casting patterns for the electrical controls so they would kind of fit in with the Art Deco design of the machine. Tried to keep it all looking original, but, you know, add that modern functionality. Um, got a couple of e-stops on it, one at each end, you know, if things go to pot. Uh, just It's just a pleasure to use. And it's on the lighter side of machine tools for a 16-inch lathe. I think the, way, I think the machine weighs about 2,700 pounds. Right. But, you, you know, know compared, compared to what most guys have in their home shops, it's really, really capable. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm just curious, how did you how did you compensate for the loss in the saddle and the ways? Well, on a south bend, like a lot of older banjo style lathes, it's really not a big deal. If the center line of the tool drops, Basically, the, the, the saddle has dropped, which means the apron has dropped. All you really need to do is drop the, the rack that's under the front edge of the bed down to meet it. Okay. You drop the uh, gearbox on the left side down to the new center line of the apron, and then the bearing support on the right side. Pretty much everything else in the drive line is taken up just by rotating the banjo around another couple degrees. Oh, okay. Not a big yeah. deal. That's that's awesome. Did did it have any? Because um, I, I believe they they uh, hardened the ways on those, and did it? I, th I think it was only a, a surface hardening. I don't know how deep it went. Did did you notice any uh, spots where the the ways were soft? Yeah, all of it. <laughs> all, all of it. Okay. Uh, the hardened the hardened South Bend option came along later. I think I I don't know exact dates. I want to say like. Uh, Mid fifties is when that became a mainstream oh, okay. so option. It wasn't, wasn't even on yours yet. Okay, right, that makes sense. Very cool. Yeah, that that's an awesome, awesome restoration. So, um, when you were doing that restoration, what what was your go to tool? Like your without it, it would have been a nightmare to to get that figured out. What was your go to tool for that? Another lathe. <laughs> Another lathe, okay. Absolutely, no question. You can't work on a lathe without a lathe. Uh, 
and you probably can't work on a lathe without a milling machine. I had neither, and I owe a great debt to a friend uh, that I made through the South Bend Forum on Practical Machinists, uh, Neil Tyson, who lives nearby in Huntsville, where we lived at the time. And you can find one of Keith Rucker's shop tours of Neil's shop. He's got a, uh, I want to say, 1930 version of the South Bend 16-inch that came off of a merchant ship that was salvaged as the ship was being broken up. Right. And he has a Bridgeport. Um, it's actually a clone that, uh, you know, we use to fix everything from keyways to cutting and flipping my lead screw so the unworn part of the lead screw was up in the use area you know lots, lots of collars and bushings and things that you need to replace worn parts so, so getting the first lathe is kind of key but uh, next one's going to be a lot easier there you go do you, have, do you have a next one in your sights I don't. My next machine tool really wants to be a Bridgeport or a Wells Index, an email of that size yep. and capacity. Fair enough. I, I, ha I have the same aspiration. I, I need to get one of those. That's the biggest hole in my shop right now is no, no milling machine. Mm. Getting back to your process and your work with Vaughn Industrial, have you had any crazy stories with folks uh, asking for either something too big or too complicated um, or are most folks fairly reasonable to your your business and your setup? Most people who come looking are looking for machine tags of one flavor or another. I've had two tags that were too big for me to etch and I had to send those to a commercial etching house mm -hmm. which was fine and when people come asking for large quantities which to me is like more than 50 um, I also usually wind up sending them to the commercial house. Frankly, it's it's just not something I want to set up for with that amount of chemicals, and it's cheaper for them. Usually, somewhere between twenty-five and you know fifty, there's a break point where it starts being cheaper to go pay a unit cost plus a setup fee from a commercial house. But the the you know I, I get some really odd requests. I'm working on one right now that's for a, an amusement car that was uh, made in Germany, imported to Wisconsin. Uh, mm -hmm. Pretty cool tag. I've gotten requests uh, for airplane, um, like airframe numbers for an airplane that was being restored. I've gotten some sketchy requests. People calling up and say, hey, can you make a VIN tag for a car? Oh, no, okay. that's that's an e that's an easy no. Yeah, there you go. And there's a related request that I got. Uh, I'll share this quickly. Um, I don't know, six months ago, maybe a year ago now, I got a request to make what's called a timing tag. And if you're into hot rods at all, uh, you you might have heard of timing associations like SCTA, Southern California Timing Association. Well, that's really one of only a handful that are left nowadays but back in the 30s and 40s and 50s in the heyday of hot rodding there were lots of these around so I got a request to recreate one for the son of a man who raced a car and the timing tag had been lost and he was restoring his father's hot rod he wanted to put the timing tag back on it and said sure not knowing any different I made his tag posted it on Instagram got a some pretty good feedback on it 
and then got a DM from a fellow saying, hey, can you recreate this tag from SCTA, which is kind of the premier timing association out there. And I started down the path of, sure, no problem. Well, a day or two later, got another direct message from a fellow who's a member of one of the SCTA clubs who said, hey, um, I heard you're making a tag for this fellow. I'd like to ask you to consider not doing that. And I was a little bit offended. I, I had no idea what I was stepping into. And he proceeded to explain to me a little bit of the history with these tags. His point was people died winning these tags and original ones sell for two and three and four thousand dollars on eBay he said you're setting yourself up to, to basically make counterfeits and I'd like to ask you to consider not doing that mm. okay wow so from that point I actually reached out to SCTA to the leadership team and I've been talking to them about possibly becoming a source for the the you know the old legacy tags that they don't make anymore. We'll see where that goes. Okay, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I never. I mean, I obviously a, a VIN tag for a car that makes sense, but I, I never would have thought for something like that. But yeah, that absolutely does make sense. So that's that's good that they they uh, reached out to you and let you know what was going on with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know much about racing. Where on the car do they locate that tag? Well, it would have been displayed very prominently, and there was a color code to them. And I don't know all the details, but if you ever see one of these timing tags on the dash of a car that's red, that probably means they're a record holder. Hmm. Wow. Generally, they started out black. You know, you were an also-ran, and uh, there might have been some other colors in there, but the record holders were issued as reds, hmm. is my and understanding. It would, and it would be on the dashboard. Yeah. Uh, They'd be riveted on. They might be on the cowl, but I think mostly they were pretty proud to show them off. And you, you might, might see cars, cars out there with five or six of these things for different races they've run in. Yeah, so they wouldn't Very be on cool. the outside of the car because you wouldn't no. want someone to try and steal them. Correct. Okay, got it. Makes sense. Very cool. That is awesome. So I, going back, you you were saying um, that the, that at some points the size of a job gets uh, a little bit too big. In between 25 and 50 is where you set your limit depending on what what the size is and what type it is. Um, that threshold, is that mostly because you're talking lots of, of uh, tanks full of chemicals and it just becomes a processing issue where you've got to get rid of all this at the end? Or is it a, a physical piece? It does. Piece? It so, does. And frankly, so I'm, a, I'm a basically a one-man one, one shop. My cost curve flatlines pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, once I get past the first one, I get it proofed in, I make three or four. They get faster, but then my learning curve basically flattens out at that point. And, you know, they're just going to take what they take each, each additional copy. When you go to a commercial etching house, uh, companies like uh, Vision Mark in Ohio and Texas Nameplate in Texas, obviously, they will take the artwork and after an initial like a usually it's around a hundred dollars to set up your vector artwork they'll create a uv exposure mask and they can mask large sheets of tags hundreds of them at once and with proper registration you know it's basically they put metal in one end and and uh, finished ready to ship tags come out the other end you know ready for inspection before packaging 
highly automated. So yes. I might get down to a unit cost of 20 bucks a tag, kind of at the low end for me. Mm -hmm. They might get down to at a you know 100 or 200 quantity. They might get down to six or eight bucks a tag. And if you're ordering okay. a thousand tags, you might get them for a buck fifty a piece. Oh wow! Hmm. Well, uh, yeah, that is good to know. So you know, quantity-wise, but what is what is your limit for a tag dimensionally? My etching tank is eighteen by eighteen by about four and a half inches wide on the inside. I typically have six to eight gallons of ferric chloride in play at any one time, and I have a bubbler that uh, keeps the eddy currents, convection currents from streaking the background, randomizes the flow inside, keeps it all turbulent, and uh, speeds up the etch and makes a nice smooth background. Excellent. Have you, have you made a tag yet that has pushed the, the size limits of your tank? Uh, yeah, I have. I have a a job in play right now it's for a guy who builds really high-end hot rods and I probably shouldn't say too much about it yet because he's not I don't want to get out in front of him but okay. the concept is it's a highly detailed engine bay uh, probably I think 30s or 40s vintage engine with tappet covers lots of chrome and he designed some special badges that hold down the tappet covers and um, they're deep etched in brass and then they're sent out to be nickel plated and then chromed oh wow brass that makes a cool. fantastic substrate for chrome by the way mm -hmm. so uh, i don't know exactly where they're at in that process it's actually a, a car for a celebrity um, I think it's a celebrity charity, maybe, when it's all said and done. I'm not sure of the details, but I'm expecting that build to start being publicized here shortly. Yeah, that sounds like a great project. Yeah, can't wait to see what that comes comes out with. I am stoked to see it. <laughs> Excellent. The, uh, the input to this process um, starts, obviously, with the historic artwork. Um, what What are most people's... Uh, submission to you is usually pictures or online references um, does it work better if you actually have a worn badge to build from or um, digital uh, files to then try and create some DXFs from yourself yeah great question um, I, I usually start from a couple of points well it's really from one point it's a scanned image of the original tag if we can get it now whether I scan it that requires them to mail me the tag, mm -hmm. and some people are understandably reluctant to put a, a vintage, one-of-a-kind tag in the mail. I get that. So when somebody's reluctant to mail it, I walk them through how to how to scan it in the way that I like to get it, and that is actually with two machinist rules laying at right angles to each other, one horizontal, one vertical and lay them right next to the tag on their flatbed scanner and then I've got a perfect uh, scale reference you know from their scanner to my computer to my printer to the mask that's being transferred onto the plate so we don't have a scale problem nice yeah because yeah, all those all those transfers can you know distort and alter the image in some way and if, if right. you have the, the the rules right next to it you know exactly how large it's supposed to be so that is that's a great process yep yeah and sometimes i've, I've gotten a lot more business in the last year or so with entrepreneurs 
uh, people who build cars, boats, planes, uh, recently did a job for a gentleman who makes custom smokers and barbecue grills. So people send me a logo. I take their vector logo and I wrap a frame and usually some stamp fields around it. And we work together on what kind of color scheme they want and uh, give them a machine tag that they can put on their product. Yeah, I, awesome. I really like the one that you made for uh, Fireball Tools for his. Yeah, oh, that was advice. that was amazing. Number one, <laughs> I you know I, I just had to do tribute to Jason. I love everything that guy does. He has a very unique design aesthetic that I really appreciate, and he has a a real eye for mixing old and new. Mm -hmm. If you right. watched his bandsaw build. Uh, kind of awesome. the ultimate resto mod, his uh, belt grinder. Just fantastic mm -hmm. design sense. I love what he does. And I just called him up. I said, hey, I'd like to I'd like to just offer this as a channel gift, uh, free of charge, just to honor what you did there. And I think it That's fit awesome. the machine pretty well. It did, yeah. I, I mean, the, the vice was awesome, and the, the tag, you know, it just adds that much more to it. Yeah. So we, we've we've talked about uh, you know what your offerings and and your business and and what you do. We've mentioned uh, Vaughn Industrial several times, but let's put it in one spot. Let uh, let all the listeners who may not be aware already, <laughs> if they want to get a tag from you, how do they contact you? Tell us all about that. Yeah, so <clears throat> you can go directly through the website, uh, vaughnindustrial.com. There's a contact page. Shoot me a, a note there. Tell me what you're looking for. I'll reply back uh, directly to your email, and we can exchange pictures, sketches, you know, pictures of napkins, whatever you got, and we'll figure out how to get you a tag. My library of existing art is growing all the time. And people very kindly send me scans and pictures of tags that they find on machines. And I tuck them away. I had an instance last night for an Atlas Picomatic, which is, uh, I, I'm not even sure exactly what the unique details are yet, but I happen to have a, an image for a fellow who wrote me and said, hey, I've got this picture. It was horribly grainy taken from four or five feet away he said this is the best image i've got and i just so happened to have an image that i sent back to him i said is this what you're looking for so um you can reach me on the website you can reach me through instagram at king tutley k-i-n-g-t-u-t-l-e-y and um you know shoot me shoot me, shoot me a dm or even comment on a post and i'll get back to you Awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, this has been a great uh, discussion. Do you have any words of wisdom or advice for those that may be considering either trying to restore a machinery badge or uh, potentially get into um, starting to make badges for themselves? <clears throat> I do. Um, let's think how to frame this. There are lots of ways to mask metal so that you can etch it. You can use a Cricut machine, a vinyl cutter, if the details aren't too small. As you can imagine, you get down into six-point font text. Uh, that becomes impractical really quickly. You can use the laser toner method that I've talked about that I use mostly. 
And, and what that, that means is you're going to buy a transfer medium. The most common one is called Press and Peel Blue or PNP. You'll see it referred to online. Um, you can buy that material at a company called Techniques. It's www.techniks.com. Um, costs about $1.25 for an 8x11 sheet or 85 11 sheet that you can print in a laser printer. That's probably the most accessible method that you're going to find. The problem comes when people go to do the heat transfer, they get really frustrated because they uh, have seen online where people say, oh, just use an iron and iron it on. It's total <laughs> crap. Don't fall for it. Get yourself an electric griddle. Find whatever your toner remelt temperature is. For my brother, laser printer, it's about 350 degrees is the temperature I set that griddle to. You put the plate down and heat it from the bottom, and then you put your mask down on top and roll it with a hard rubber roller. That's how you get good mask transfers. And then if you do get the occasional what they call holiday or void, in the mask, then go down to Sally Beauty Supply and buy some traditional fingernail polish with a detail brush in the applicator. And that's what you use to touch up those holes. And uh, you're on your way. If you want to get fancier, you can use what's called UV dry film. So this is a plastic, uh, almost like an adhesive material that comes in a roll. Uh, it comes in a roll that's bagged in a black bag because you don't want to open it in daylight. But you can apply this material to the metal. Um, it's kind of a process, but you expose it to UV light with a, uh, a master of your artwork that's nice and dark and black. By exposing it to UV light, you cure the parts that aren't hiding behind that mask. And then the parts that are hiding behind the mask, then you wash away with a caustic solution like a um, washing powder. Sodium was a sodium hydroxide, I think. And that exposes the metal, and then you cure it the rest of the way in the UV light, and it becomes a nice durable mask that you can then etch a plate. Uh, if you want to go high-tech and you have access to a, a nice laser shop with a high-end fiber laser and galvo head, uh, that's a certain type of optics that they come with that makes them really precise. And, and by nice, I mean these are $30,000, dollars $60,000 machines. They're not common. But you probably have a shop in your area that can do laser etching. And frankly, the laser doesn't care what metal it is. Aluminum, brass, titanium, stainless steel, it doesn't matter. It's going to vaporize it. And you'll just have to figure out what format your artwork needs to be in for the laser shop to do that kind of work for you. And, uh, and when your sticker is melting on the hot plate, then you go online to Vaughn Industrial, and Tom will help us get it the right. way. Yeah. Well, first shoot me an email, and let me see if I can walk you through it. I've helped a few people uh, get started doing their DIY tags, and I'm happy to help anybody anytime. Look, the reality is not everybody can afford my time to make a one-off tag. Getting to the first one is always the one that hurts on the cost, and I understand a thousand percent. I always feel bad sometimes when I give people prices. I know they're probably not going to be able to fit into their restoration budget. And, uh, you know, don't feel bad about telling me no. Say, look, I'm just going to put that money somewhere else in the machine. You're not going to hurt my feelings. But if you want to yeah. try it, I will 
do my best to walk you through how to get it done yourself, and I'm very happy to do that. There's no way I can get all the tags out there that need to be done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've certainly got a, a, a good chunk of them and, and have become a fantastic resource to the restoration community. But that's that's one of the, the business points that we definitely like to harp on is that, you know, make sure you are getting paid for your time and you, you know what you're worth and, and make sure that you're fulfilling that requirement. Because if you don't do that, then you, you fall down the, the hole real quick. Well, <clears throat> one of the bits of wisdom that Adam Booth has given me in the last couple of years, he said, Tom, if you're getting every job that you bid, you're not bidding high enough. That makes sense. There you go. Tom, Excellent. you are the man, and we really do appreciate your time and your, your wisdom here. This has been an education, and it's really nice to be able to pull back the curtain a bit and uh, appreciate the level of detail that, that these type of uh, – beautiful tags take to recreate so well thank you very much it's a pleasure to be here and i'm happy to share this is one of those things there's just a handful of people doing this kind of work left in the world and i'd like to see more yeah for sure that would be fantastic okay ladies and gentlemen thank you so much tom for coming on the podcast make sure you go check him out on his instagram at king tutley you can see the works that he has already created as well as on his website, Vaughn Industrial, where you can uh, contact him in order to submit a request to get a tag made for yourself. And you can also contact us at the Restoration Podcast on our Gmail, which is at the Restoration Podcast at gmail.com, as well as on our Instagram at the Restoration Podcast. And this has been the Restoration Podcast with James, Evan, and Dave, where we restore yesterday's tools for the craftsmen of today. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Thank Tom. Thank you. Have a great Thank night. You. Take care. Thanks for having me. Yep. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So what is the, the story with King Tutley? So freaking when I was in like first grade, the Tutankhamun exhibit came from England to America. Mm -hmm. So it was all the, you know, PBS stations carried, all the schools were, you know, hot talking about it. We had King Tut posters all over the walls of my elementary school in Arkansas. And somebody started calling me Tutley. And then it became King Tutley, and it just kind of stuck. Wow. And so, like, I don't know, six or seven years ago, Instagram comes along. Somebody said, you need an Instagram account if you're going to post this stuff. And my kids said, Dad, set up one for you and for Mom. And, of course, all the cool ones are gone. And so we, we came up just on a total whim thinking – no regrets, King Tutley and Queen Tutley. Nice. There you go. That's <laughs> funny. And then I was stuck with it, man. <laughs> yeah. Now, now there's like 8,000 followers, and I keep wanting to move it over to something more commercial, and I just, I, I don't know. I don't know how that would go. <laughs> yeah.
I mean, I, I know, I know, I can, I can type in Tom Utley, and your your account will come up. But every time I go to look at it, I always type in King Tutley. And there you go. I, I know it. I know it'll come up. But that's, that's been that's been a that's been following you for a while. If it's been elementary school, wow. Well, if if Adam hadn't put it directly in his videos, and then Keith, I probably would have changed it early on. But at that point, it was okay. too late. Like yeah, that's my yeah, advertising. Like, I've never advertised anywhere, and it's all just been social media. So it's, I, I can't complain.